You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the first episode of our brand new podcast series, Wisdom and QuickViz present the greatest T20. I'm Yazrana and with me is QuickViz analyst and co-author of the Wisdom Cricket Book of the Year, Cricket 2.0, Freddie Wilde. How are you doing, Freddie? How are you lockdowning? Hi, mate. Yeah, good to speak to you. Um, I'm, I'm lockdowning okay. Um, we're all sort of finding ways to cope, aren't we? Um, and uh, I guess this podcast is, is another, another part of that. Um, but yeah, no, I'm coping all right. How about yourself? Yeah, likewise, likewise. Uh, yeah, very, very used to it by this point and pretty desperate for cricket to return. And hopefully, cricket returns not as far away as we, as we thought a couple of weeks ago. To kick us off this week, we'll be discussing who the greatest T20 batsman of all time is with our special guest, Luke Wright. Before we play that discussion, Freddie, do you want to explain how your interest in T20 cricket developed more than that of an average fan and then a bit about what you do professionally around T20 cricket in particular? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, I took, um, I, I started writing about cricket uh, a few years ago, and all cricket, um, and that when, I, when I started at university, which is six years ago or so now. Um, and when I was doing that, I became uh, more interested in the sort of numbers side of the game um, at about at a similar time to also becoming particularly interested in the T20 format. Obviously, T20 cricket has changed the game. Uh, massively on and off the pitch and I sort of recognised um, along with my co-author Tim Wigmore um, of our book Cricket 2.0 that there aren't many there weren't many journalists sort of taking T20 particularly seriously um, so I started doing that essentially um, and that led to um, well, some, one of the companies that I worked for during that period was Crickviz who I now work with full-time um, and obviously as, as we'll probably explore across these 10 shows uh, T20 in particular lends itself to data analysis and sort of understand or having access to, to certain numbers makes it easier to understand I guess what's going on in the game uh, so that natural fit of the work that I was doing for Crickviz and then um, an interest in trying to sort of uncover exactly what was going on in T20 worked work quite well together um, so during my time at university I got quite stuck into that and then since then um, I have uh, started working full-time for Crickviz and as we work in on all formats of cricket with broadcasters around the world and with teams around the world. But as I said, there is a, it does lend itself to T20. 
Um, and since then, I've done a bit of work with, with a number of T20 sides. I've worked with the, the Renegades and the Big Bash. Um, we did some work with the Oval Invincibles for the 100 draft. Um, although sadly, it, it might look like our squad will never get on the park. Um, and, and then we do some sort of consultancy work as well with, with IPL teams. And I sort of got a good relationship with a few coaches around the world. But, you know, we'll, we'll jump on the phone every now and then and sort of have discussions around, you know, strategy and selection and, and all that kind of stuff. So essentially, yeah, an interest in the format and then a combination of, of, of having access to the numbers has worked quite nicely together. Um, and so, yeah, that's led, led to me, I suppose, specialising. We talk about specialists on the pitch. I suppose I'm a bit of a T20 specialist off the pitch and that, that's my primary focus, um, you know, day to day. Just quickly, one more question on, on your work. H- how much do teams nowadays rely on data from analysts? How, how much is, is the influence of, of analysts dominating how, how T20 cricket in particular is played that you might not notice when you're just watching a game of the blast back at home on the sofa? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you definitely don't notice it much um, sort of when you're watching, you know, when you're just watching a game because things happen so quickly. And this is sort of why the numbers are so important. T20 games are so action-packed. There's so much going on. Um, or relatively speaking, compared to test cricket, it's important to state that T- T20 games still last the best part of three and a half hours, which is longer than most sports. Um, but there's a lot going on very fast, and the numbers allow you to sort of try and un- or understand you know, why that bowling change is made or why this team has maybe picked an extra spinner. Um, and, and, and data analysis is growing among teams. It's primarily in, in auctions and drafts. That sort of the advent of them has meant teams have had to work out, one, how good players are, and two, how much they're worth, which previously, um, when the game was run around international teams, that obviously wasn't so much of an issue. You still need to know how good they were, but how much they're worth in particular. Um, you know, you didn't have to pay for a player for them to play for England. Now, obviously, that, that's how it works in auctions and drafts. So that sort of drove it, I think. But it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent in, in match day planning. Um, you often hear about commentators talking about matchups, and you know that might be that someone like Chris Lynn, for example, he's very dominant against pace bowling, but far less so against spin. Um, and it's the job of, or my job, or any other analyst in that instance to sort of identify those trends, bring them up in selection meetings or in the dugout, um, and then hopefully that's enacted on the pitch, and then and, you know teams can see better results. Um, you know, as a product of, of the work that's gone in behind the scenes. So, yeah, it's, it's growing, um, but that, that doesn't mean not, not every team or every coach has yet embraced it. You, you meet a lot of a resistance along the way, and that's understandable. You know, a lot of these guys who you're working with were professional players themselves, and, and they do have a huge, you know, far more knowledge about the game than I probably ever wish to have. Um, but the idea is that the, the numbers that um, you know, myself and the rest of the cricketers team and other analysts around the world are there to help and complement um, the expertise of the guys, you know, in those positions, and hopefully, as I said, yeah, try and make them um, ultimately make better decisions and, and and see improved results. I suppose that's really interesting. Our guest today is Luke Wright, Freddie. We were talking about it earlier, and uh, we basically realised that he's basically the perfect guest for this show. He's an England T Twenty World Cup winner, started his T Twenty cricket career in two thousand four, still playing the game. Um, and he's played T20 cricket all over the world. So he's got a great perspective on a lot of the players who we'll be mentioning today. Um, so without further ado, here is our conversation with Luke. So a warm welcome to the show to Luke Wright, England World T20 winner in 2010. The highest run scorer by an Englishman in the history of T20 cricket. The Englishman with the most T20-hundreds. And a man who's played in T20 leagues all over the world. How are you doing, Luke? And thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. So something we want to get across in this show is, is how much T20 has changed since the early days. You made your T20 debut back, all the way back in 2004. 
Um, how seriously was T20 cricket taken among county professionals back then? I looked at the scorecard of your debut T20 game and Tim Murta was batting three for Surrey as they racked up 221. Yeah, I just remember when we were first told about the concept, it was seen as a bit of a joke, especially, I suppose, by the senior players. Um, and I think at the time, with the amount of cricket you played, they almost saw that this was a chance for them to have a break. And I remember a lot of the senior players saying, oh, we'll just stick the youngsters in. It's a bit of a, uh, a slog off. No one's fussed about it. And I think that soon changed, obviously, once people saw the crowds coming in and wanted a piece of that. But um, yeah, initially, I think no one really realised how big it was going to be. Um, and it soon changed, didn't it? And suddenly everyone was trying to get back into it. But I suppose the actual game itself has changed drastically with, with the amount of power that people are, um, are, you know, and the skills that people produce now compared to what they did back then. Did you see T20 cricket as an opportunity to make a name for yourself? I mean, with the senior players perhaps not taking it too seriously, and also playing in front of big crowds and on TV. Yeah, and I think it just suited the way I played. I mean, I was sort of all energy action cricketer, you know, bat bowling and fielding. Just wanted to throw myself in at 100 miles an hour. And, you know, as soon as there was crowds, um, it made it even more exciting. But just the concept for me um, just matched perfectly. So it, as soon as they announced what we were doing, I was excited straight away. Um, it's, as I said, it suited me. But then when the crowds come as well, I think it gives you... Um, I suppose an, an early chance that a lot of people don't you have to play international cricket or obviously franchise cricket now to play in front of crowds whereas back then the only way you played in, in front of those crowds was, was representing your country which only a few obviously get the chance to so um, I think that's been a, a huge thing for the for kids nowadays to grow up with. What were the batting plans like in the early days of T20 cricket? Was there much nuance in them at all in the mid-2000s? Yeah, and I think I don't think anyone, you know, you're trying to work out what the good scores were. And as you said, like someone like Murta just thrown up the order. And I think it was just seen as sort of go out there and have a crack. And there was, you know, Freddie well knows there wouldn't be many stats around and uh, game plans or matchups and all things that have developed now. And it really was just let's see who can have a crack. And um, and I suppose even scores, you look back at some of the scores being 140, 130s, it was sort of developed, you know, you get the odd anomaly. But um, I think people were just really trying to work out. And as you said, at the first, I remember everyone thinking it was the death of spinners. You know, that was the big one. That, that's it, the end of spinners. And it soon showed that what a huge impact they're still having now. Um, and that's how it's developed, really. And I think back then, no one knew. And obviously, we had no idea how it was going to develop. I think I, I remember uh, at the first, I think it might have been the first game, at the toss, um, Adam Holyoke won it for Surrey. And the, the guy presenting the toss said, um, what are you going to do? And he said, "I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a feel because I have no idea what's going to happen." Like you know, there was just a complete sort of like we're going to just we'll, we'll stick them in, and so they can have a go at batting, and we'll work out how exactly this game's played. So there was sort of a lot of anarchy to those early days. It sounds like, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Who were the uh, who were the players that stood out early on in 2004, five, six? As, as players who were like ahead of the curve, players who are able to consistently score at rates higher than anyone else really was doing in in uh, the T20 Cup back then? Well, I suppose in county cricket, it was the same sort of people, really. I mean, it was someone, I mean, speaking from Sussex's point of view, it was probably someone like a Murray Goodwin showed his class straight away, was able to suddenly adapt. He was known for batting all day for us in four-day cricket, but someone that instantly just was able to, to change his game plan. And as I said, I think those strike rates have obviously gone up and up as we've gone on. Um, but for me, watching someone like him, it was to show how he adapted. Um, and you're right, a lot of us, I mean, I started off at nine. I was really got picked as a bowler 
stroke fielder that could just come in and give it a go at the end. It was only when I got one chance, um, luckily for Sussex, and, and managed to get 100 that that was it. I sort of changed my whole game around opening the batting. But um, yeah, Muzz, Muzz was massive. I, th- I think a lot of the younger guys instantly sort of took it on board. It instantly suited their sort of cricket. Um, someone like Chris Adams, again, out at, at Sussex was a big hitter. Um, but again, I think the way that the game's evolved is, you know, I remember we never did weight sessions at Sussex or anything. You do the odd run, you might do some press-ups, etc. But the way that weight training now has come into the game and you see obviously even out in India with the way that Kohli's changed the whole training setup, I think the way that people hit the ball now is so different to, to what they did back then. It's interesting you talk about weight training there because one name I wrote down as sort of an early guy who had success was a guy who probably, well, he did spend a lot of time in the gym anyway, I imagine. He was a big blow. And that's Andrew Simons, who, who, who had, who, he, I think he got 100 very early on. One of the, I think the second 100 in T20 cricket he got um, playing for Kent, I think it was. And he was one of the players who early on um, had a lot of success. His strike rate actually is amazing. His Crick Info profile looks like something from 2020, not something from 2004. He's got a T20 international strike rate of 169, which is Andre Russell-esque, um, like 15 years before Russell was doing it. Um, so he was someone who I remember sort of stood out early on as just, you know, he was obviously a, a big, powerful bloke. So it, he was well suited to it. And then, as you said, um, that sort of strength training became more commonplace. And then a lot more people started looking like Andrew Simons. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it shows you, I mean, no disrespect to Murtry, you can hit the odd decent boundary. But I think back then you'd have one or two hitters in your team um, and especially lower order hitters. I mean, they just didn't really happen. So I suppose in terms of setting out a, a score, you had to have one or two players really sort of dig in and sit in. I mean, even not that long ago, we'd have someone like Michael Yardy sort of playing an anchor role in T20. And you don't really see that anymore. It's all the hitters, you know. And if you got a team three or four down, you pretty much knew that was the end of the game if you got half a decent score on the board. Whereas, you know, nowadays, number nines are coming in and, and still able to get 20 off eight balls and win the game. And I think that's the big change that everyone now seems to be able to hit a four or six. Chris Gale is someone who we may end up picking as the greatest T20 batsman at the end of this show. In his famous 175 in the IPL, still the record T20 score, a certain LJ Wright had figures of 1 for 26 or 4 overs against Gale's RCB that day. He had him sussed out. What, what was it like being on the receiving end of that? And how did he manage to escape with such good figures? I have no idea. I think it's gone un- unspoken from him of the greatest spell of bowling in T20 history. <laughs> but there was me, there was two of us actually. Uh, Buresh went really well as well, I think, in the game. He went for even less. Um, do you know what? I think a, a few things that happened actually was uh, with timeouts, etc. I think I just timed my overs perfectly. I bowled the first over, I think, straight after the power play where he almost was just taking a breather. Um, and then I bowled after, straight after one of the timeouts. I think I did that twice. So I think I just managed to just let him give himself an over to get back in um, and go again. And for some reason, it didn't feel like he targeted me. He was sort of hitting everyone else. Um, but I just remember it being ridiculous. I mean, balls without being, you know, the, the, the catching uh, bats that people use, it felt like he was using one of those. I mean, balls were going out of the stadiums or hitting the top tier. I mean, he, he honestly, I mean, often people say it's a myth, but he didn't seem to miss time one ball. Um, and I just remember Mitch Marsh, bless him, we were stood at backward point, um, both of us wondering what was going on. And there was, I think we were about to start the 19th over and he'd bowled three overs already for, oh my, for plenty. And he said, you know, which ball bugger's going to have to bowl this last over? And I looked up at the scoreboard 
I said, I think it's you, mate. <laughs> the blood draining out of his face. And the over, I mean, to be honest, he said to me then, he goes, if I get away with not going for six sixes here, I'll take it. And I think he went for five sixes and he took it. He, he walked up and goes, I'll take that. Um, but it was just, you know, amazing, amazing hitting. Um, and it showed, I mean, we walked out to bat and I think, they thought there might be a bit of rain around. And I remember Alan Donald giving me the Duckworth Lewis uh, scores. And I just remember ripping it up and throwing it back to him because at five overs, we were, <laughs> there was no chance of us ever having a sniff of winning. But I mean, he showed, I mean, going back to players, I mean, he is one person that hits the ball bigger than anyone. And at times it feels like you're playing little youth cricket against a proper man. And that's, you know, that's how he's all been. One thing that's really interesting about batsmen as destructive as Gale is their effect on how bowlers bowl. There's a really interesting stat in Freddie's book about how bowlers bowl more wide to Gale than they do to the average batsman. Did you feel that fear from the bowlers that day? Yeah, and I think that that's a, a massive point because I think whenever, you know, even from my, I'm nowhere near, obviously on their scale, but I find when you're on good form or when you're in good rhythm, teams naturally seem to change. You know, straight away a slip goes out before you even face the ball and they've changed what they're trying to do. And I think all those things actually, you know, they stop attacking you. And I think Brendan McCullum was probably one captain that changed a lot of that mindset, would actually try and attack people like Gale, whether it's two slips or keep slips in longer to try and attack him to get him out rather than just defensive. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, what Freddie talked about with stats and matchups, I think that's where it's changed now that you're actually trying to make it as hard as someone you can. If it's Gale, I think, it's, you know, it's been well documented, left arm swing bowling is something that he finds harder. So you're trying to almost before the game, select your left arm. And it doesn't mean it's going to work, but you're just trying to make it as hard as it can be with your matchup. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, you'd be in meetings going in for Gale, you'd spend, you know, in an hour's meeting, you might spend 45 minutes on Gale and the rest, you know, 15 minutes on the rest. I mean, those changes now because of the players they've got, but he, he just struck fear in you. You knew if he got going, there's no stopping him at times. Um, and that's what's so scary as a bowler that, you know, you go to a game thinking he could hit you for six sixes at any point. It's interesting you say there's no stopping him. I mean, one of the, I think the, the most amazing stat for me about Gale is just the number of hundreds he's made, 22 mm -hmm. T20 hundreds, uh, and the next most is eight. And that's kind of just indicative of the fact that once he's in, you, you can't really stop him. And, and, that, and that goes back to his, his, his method, which is very unique, isn't it, really? In the first mm -hmm. 10, 10 to 15 balls he faces, 15 is maybe a bit many, 10 balls, he really doesn't go hard. He, he, he's essentially knowing that he, he's going to play himself in. Everyone knows that early on in your injury, you're most vulnerable. That's when, if there is a bit of movement early on, you know, you're not quite accustomed to the pitch, your eyes aren't quite you know, accustomed to the light, all that kind of stuff. Gail's like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait this out because I know that I've got such awesome power. I'm such a powerful man um, that you know, I can catch up in no time. And that's what he does you know, often. And there have been times when he's got out, you know, he's, he's faced, you know, I think there was a very famous innings in, in one of the World Cup finals where he got three off about 16 or 17 balls. And that's hugely costly. But the point is, he's worked out, rightly so, that over a long career, it will more often than not come off. Um, and it comes back to, um, it comes back to what, what you have said, that sort of physical power. Um, at Crickviz, we've got quite a nice stat, which, which when Gale plays an attacking shot, his strike rate is 226, which is the highest of any player in the history of the game. So he is the most effective attacking batsman ever to play T20. And obviously this is a format, as, as you know, Luke, you were touching on, is, is, is based around attacking intent from a batting perspective. And he is the best at that. And I think what that enables him to do is it enables him to pick his moment. And it's quite interesting that you're talking about you know, yourself getting away with 
um, good figures and also Boovy in that game. I think the pair of you went for less than 50 across your eight overs and the other guys, and it wasn't only him, there were some other players in that Bangalore team who <laughs> got stuck into you, sorry to bring it up again. Um, but it, well, well, not you individually, but what he could do was basically say, look, I don't, fa- I don't fancy getting after this guy, but I know that there are many matchups that I will target and he's just so effective at doing that. And I think left arm spins the one that you just never bowl to get. Like it's, it's, his record against it is absurd. He averages, I think, more than 100 against left arm spinners. Um, he'll score at a strike rate of two, 200 plus. Um, and he knows that he can wait out um, you know, his, his six balls from Luke Wright because when the left arm spinner comes on, he, he will get stuck into him. And, and that, yeah. that method enables him to do what very few T20 players can do, and that's combine a high strike rate with a long innings. Normally, if you're going to be scoring at those rates, you're going to get out. You're, you're taking risks. But Gale, because he's so powerful, manages to sort of almost like the holy grail of batting. He gets those two things together. And that's why he scored, what, you know, 11,000 plus runs. Yeah, uh, it is. And, and he's so different to go about. Every other opener goes out to try and make use of those first six. And I think as a team, your only strategy is to try and obviously get him out early. But other than that, you're trying to keep him quiet. But you almost feel like, it's up to him when he wants to suddenly go. And the longer that goes, you're obviously happier. I mean, there's times where I've played against him where it's got to eight overs and he still doesn't feel like he's actually tried to hit a ball for for six or four or six. And then suddenly something happens, he finds someone. But I remember, I'm obviously going back to that uh, 175. I think it was Aaron Finch bowling left arm, well, it's left arm straights, basically. But Uver, I seem to have a bit of a sore shoulder that day. So uh, Finchie had to bowl. I just remember him smiling. I think he even laughed when Finchie came on. And poor Finchie went absolutely miles. But but yeah, he, he went about it differently. And I think, you know, it's interesting, Miguel, because, you know, you'll have the stats on how many trophies he's won. I think it's important to have the right matchup as a batter with him in that power play, who is going to use the power play. Because if, if he's not, then you need a boundary striker in, in with him in those first six. And I think if you haven't, suddenly you can actually lose seven or eight overs before he goes. And if you do get him out, obviously you've taken a big portion out of the games. But, uh, I mean, on his own, as you said, I mean, at any point when he does go, he wins games completely on his own. And 2200s, I mean, it's like a first-class four-day career. I don't think I've got 2200s in first-class cricket, let alone 2020. So, look, it's phenomenal, isn't it? And, and the other thing, I think, the one thing to say on Gale is, He's probably the one person in 2020 that it defines. It's an entertainment business. If you switch on and, and Gale's batting anywhere in the world, you sit and watch it. I think everyone from players to fans, because you're in awe of how far the balls go, how he strikes it. And it's, it's just, he's a great entertainer with it. What's, what's the plan for Gale then? What do you discuss in team meetings? Is the plan to really attack him during his first few balls at the crease and hope to get him then? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to get him early. As Freddie said, if you, the, it, once he gets in, he often, that's, you know, 2200s in its own shows that he goes on and gets big scores and he often does bat long. So you've got to get him early. And that, it's not an easy thing to do. But I think you're just trying to make it as hard as possible for him, as long as possible. So, you know, if he does get to the eighth over and you've got no option but to bring a left arm spinner on, you know you're dicing with death and, you know, the stats will say you're generally going to lose. Um, and you're trying to hold it off for as long as possible. So as a captain, if I know I've got a bowler left arm spinner, I might have to take a punt that, you know what, I'm going to have to bring him on at 14, 15 overs later, you know, later on or 12 overs just to really stretch it out and hope I get him before he's gone. Because at some point, if he's in long enough, then he's going to affect the game anyway. And I think that's, that's the change in 2020 is, as a captain myself, I spend most of my time, you know, with a lot of what Freddie writes is on matchups, you know, trying to make it as hard as possible for batters um, that I'm sure people do to me. And I think that's the big change in, um, in, in how to use stats. 
Luke, who is someone who you look at now or maybe in the past and think, wow, from a skill set point of view, you're ahead of the game? Um, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of current players, I suppose, that I look at that. You know, they only have to look at AB de Villiers at times. I, the one thing I'll say about Gale is there is certain spots you can, you know, you can. he doesn't play 360. He's not someone who will lap the ball. He's not someone and doesn't need to, obviously, as his record shows. Whereas I think when you look at, some of the modern players now who are, you know, just as great, someone like A.B. de Villiers, it's, it's 360. You can't just bowl Yorkers to him because he's got an answer to that. So even if you're having your best day out as a bowler and getting your Yorkers in, he's got an answer to that. And I think there that someone like him, you stand there at times in awe and as a bowler will turn around and go, look, I've delivered everything I want. Yeah, he's still able to hit me for four. And I think that they're the scary ones as well. I mean, Gail can be brutal, but someone like um, A.B. de Villiers is just so scary in what he can do to you. It's, it's, it's interesting there. You, you say that there's sort of weaknesses. Or weaknesses is maybe overdoing it, but there are sort of things that slight chinks in the armour with, with certain players. What, and I'm glad that you brought up de Villiers there because, for me, that is de Villiers' greatest asset is that he sort of... Um, in, in, in batting in all formats, there are, you're, there are essentially trade-offs, right? If you try and score yeah. faster, you're probably going to compromise your wicket. If you try and hit boundaries, you might face more dot balls. If you're strong against pace, for example, then you might be slightly weaker against spin. For De Villiers, those don't seem to, that, that's not an issue. He, he's able to combine all of those things. Um, and, as you, and, and the other one there is 360 degree hitting and also awesome power down the ground. Um, Gail and, and guys we'll also talk about later in the show, like Pollard and Russell have built their games on just awesome power, hitting sort of basically in a V in front of them. Russell maybe now a little bit more towards sort of cover point. He's opening that up. But De Villiers mm. is hitting that area and hitting 360. Um, and, and for me, yeah, you're, you're, you're touching on the sort of key thing there that he's almost like he, he's the sort of player you look at and you think, what can you do to this guy? Whereas, as you said, with Gail, there are slight areas to exploit. Um, and in this debate, which, you know, at, at the end of the show, we'll try and put a name on it. I think that those two already stand out for me. Gale for that sheer statistical dominance, as, as we've spoken about, um, you know, sheer volume of runs, um, awesome power. But De Villiers then sort of does things, De Villiers does things that Gale can't do. Um, and that, I think, is, is, as you said, it's a frightening prospect for a bowler or a fielding captain. I think that's one thing. I mean, we often in teams you speak about dot ball count. I think I, I think you correct me if I'm wrong. I think Gale's got one of the highest dot ball counts in cricket. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if that was anyone else, the mere mortals like myself, then we probably wouldn't have a job. But because of the brutal power, he's able to adapt that. Whereas someone like De Villiers, there's no stopping him. If it's you know, there's not many dot balls at all. If he does miss out on the boundaries, he's getting off strike, and that's where he hurts you in a different way. Um, and that's such a hard thing about this debate about who's the greatest is there's so many different strengths um, but I remember in, in the Big Bash recently when A.B. De Villiers obviously playing for Brisbane the Brisbane Heat you know you, you go into those meetings about how people are going to look sh to shut him down and you know you look at the stats and I think it's red comes up if it's someone not to bowl at him it's above 140 strike rate or etc and it's just red for De Villiers like there's nothing actually to stop him really it's just You've got to hope he has an off day. As someone who was halfway through your career when these new shots were being played more regularly, how did you try, if you did at all, to, to add them to your game? Yes, but I, I just found it so it didn't come. It's, I find it really hard. I mean, talk like lapping, I've tried so hard that I like to play the ball out in front of me. I find it really difficult. And I think you do evolve to a point. Um, 
and you try to again you almost have to make your, your strengths a super strength for me and you try and adapt because obviously again going back to data everyone knows what your strengths and weaknesses are now um, and you're trying to counteract them all the time but I think sometimes it's just so hard to do. It's a, you look at A.B. Davis, he says he often doesn't practice. It's just a natural thing to him. Um, he's just a bit of a freak. And I remember we were played at the Wanderers. Uh, was it Wanderers, I think? Might have been Newlands, actually. Years and years ago in 50-era cricket, ODIs. And Stuart Broad was, he'd have been only 25 or 6, bowling as fast as he'd bowled in his career. And I just remember even back then, A.B. Davis is stepping across and sweeping in front of a square leg. And we all just stood around and just laughed because it was just, we'd never seen it before. You wouldn't even think about doing it. Um, and it just, it was just changing the game. You know, what can you do to it? And sometimes you stand there and you, even as an opposition, I've sort of enjoyed some of the innings. As much as I hate getting beaten, you've got to just be in awe of it and just laugh, you know, and enjoy it. It's interesting you talk about the, like, you know, the, the matchups for, for De Villiers and they're all red. And you're also talking there about 360-degree batting and sort of moving over and hitting the ball through square leg. From a captain's perspective, and obviously it's something you've done more of, of late, um, it is interesting hearing you sort of think about how you, you can't sort of, not only from a bowling a bowler-type perspective, find a weakness, but if you're setting a field to De Villiers, or if you're setting a field to Gale, you, you can be quite confident yes. he's not going to get down and lap you. So you can have third, third man and fine leg up in the ring, and basically you're protecting the the straight boundaries and, and cow corner with De Villiers, you can't do that. And that's the, not only, it's so not only from a bowler type perspective, is he challenging you? He's challenging you on a ball by ball. Where do I put my fielders? Cause there's no area that's sort of safe from, from, from his power or his, or his touch. Um, and I can imagine that that must be an absolute nightmare. I did. And I think that's where sometimes you just got to double bluff, etc., to him because he, he, he changes and he's you know you you can set your field he looks for it and he but where he's so good is at times he goes down to sweep you know someone over square leg or over fine leg and you bowl a wide yorker and he's somehow able to adapt and and flip you over third man or something that's where he's you just have to say well played you know but I think with him you're constantly setting fields but almost as a bowler bowling the ball you shouldn't and they often in team meetings, you know, you get told not to do that because the ball to your field. But with him, he's so good that he is able to just pick it out. And I think you're just trying to just keep him guessing as much as possible. I, re I remember speaking to Jay Dernbach for, um, for the book and he was, uh, as many bowlers have been, was on the wrong end of a De Villiers onslaught um, in the 2014 World T20, I think it was. Um, and it ended his international career. And, you know, he said that, that that single day was the day I knew I wouldn't play for England again. Um, but he said, what, when you're bowling to, to Villiers, you can bowl six balls exactly as you've planned. And as you said there, you set a field for delivery and you can be inch perfect on that ball and it still go for six. And, and when, you, when that's happening, you, you can't really do anything. But as you said, almost just laugh and appreciate the genius for, for what it is. That's exactly right. And I think you have to do that time, don't you? Just actually appreciate how good he is. And there's mo most people you can, because someone like Butler, obviously, he's another one that plays in a similar manner. Um, but you've just got to try and keep them guessing. And I think, you know, De Villiers is even, he's just, he's just going to go down as one of the great cricketers that we've just got to enjoy while we're here. And I think often when you're in cricket and you don't always give them the full sort of attention and respect and enjoyment that you should until people finish, then you look back on people's career. Whereas with De Villiers, I think, you know, we've just got to sit back and enjoy him for as long as we can. Luke, you played a lot of T20 cricket around the world in various leagues before it was cool, at least definitely in England. You played in the IPL four years before Butler did. You played in Pakistan, Bangladesh, New Zealand. How has being able to play in those leagues all over the place 
helped your game to A, develop, but B, help T20 cricket as a game itself to develop with players being able to learn from so many different people around the world in a short space of time? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'd never want to change anything in a career. I look back at a lot of things to my time with England. I was very lucky to get over 100 caps, so I wouldn't want to change anything. But I think if I'd have been able to have the experience I had as a to, with these franchises and different leagues before playing for England, which a lot of the players are doing either during or before now, it's such an advantage. I mean, it used to be frowned upon. I remember missing out on the, one of the IPLs. Actually, Sachin Tendulkar, I thought it was a joke, Sachin Tendulkar rang me um to go and play for the Mumbai Indians in one of the first um IPLs and I honestly thought it was the lads taking the mick but I remember speaking to the ECB about it and there was me and Ravi Vipara that both got told you know if we were to go um we would be pretty much giving up playing for England whereas you look now and you know England are paying their compensation to go and play so uh, and it's you know it's I don't think back then they appreciate that sharing a changing room with you know Sachin obviously for one but so many of them. I mean, when I went to Pune, you've got Yuvaraj, um, Finchy, you've got, you know, Angelo Matthews. You can just reel off, you know, Ross Taylor, all these names. And you stood in the net, learning off how they go about it. You took asking questions, they give you tips. Um, and that was all just huge for me as a learning curve. And you're then playing in different conditions. So in terms of learning, it's the best. It's under pressure. You're there as an overseas. People expect you to perform, but you are learning. And I think you know, for me, I became a far better player probably when I was 27, 28 because of those experiences um, than at times when I was playing for England. And you only have to look at, you know, the guys that India are producing. I know they've always produced world-class players because the amount of, one, the love for it, but the amount of people they have there population-wise. But to see the way that the game's going in India with their young kids, I mean, to what they're getting exposed to is just incredible. And, you know, even to start with in England, um, you know, the young kids coming through and playing in front of fans and and the pressure and the crowds, they instantly are now growing up with the different skill sets they have to do. They've suddenly been exposed to bowl to gale when they are 19 or 18. And look, they often get, it's quite a hard <laughs> task and hard learning Way of doing it but they're exposed early so and for these franchise now you're getting some of the best overseas players come in and you're getting able to tap into that knowledge that wisdom and watch how they go about it and also you realize they're just normal people I think you know for me going and playing with at the time Dave Hussey when I went to the Melbourne Stars was one of the best T20 players in the world to see and talk to him about how nervous he gets before playing and all the doubts and everything he had he was a nervous wreck in the dugout, but then he'd suddenly walk out and it was like a different bloke and he'd suddenly, you know, he'd hit his second ball for six and he'd be off and running. But just to see that side of people that people are, you know, we all have our own doubts. And so it was something that was actually gave me a lot of confidence, um, but it was just the learning. I mean, being taught in India how to go about playing spin and then come back to England, suddenly spin feels so easy compared to where you're over in different, um, different, you know, cultures and different um I suppose all the different side of it, I suppose, just so difficult going to different conditions. And, th and that was huge for me. And that's why it's great to see the lads are learning, you know, when they're playing in IPL now, it's some of the, it's some of the highest pressure cricket and you go back to playing for England. And at times, I suppose it probably doesn't feel as big a pressure. It's interesting as well, because part of the challenge, I suppose, um, around like 2008, 9, 10, 11, in those early days when you and Bapara, Mascarenas, a few other guys were out there playing, is I think the, the, the debate was so sort of clouded by the fact that it just looked like they were going off and going out there for the money. And it took people actually going out there and experiencing it to realise that there was more to it. And obviously the money's part of it. And, and that's, that's not a bad thing. You, you know, players have got to earn money during their careers, but there was more to it. 
And I think quite um, a, a big moment in, in probably the history of modern English cricket came. I think it was the 2014, possibly 2015 IPL final. Andrew Strauss went out and watched, I think, yeah. the playoff matches out there in India and then realised, OK, hang on a second. And obviously Strauss had been involved um, quite closely in, in the fallout around Peterson with, with him sort of pushing for, for extra IPL involvement. Um, not, I don't think, because he didn't sort of um, probably because I just don't think he was quite as aware of the, the off-field or on-field benefits rather to going out there and he went there and he realised it and, mm. and you know, there was a massive shift and not only with the IPL but with all T20 leagues suddenly these players were encouraged to go out there and play in them um, and you know the, the, the ultimate proof of that success was last year in the World Cup Jofra Archer who had played what half a dozen games for England yeah. goes and bowls the, 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 the super over in the final and is the hero um, and he's, you know, he's, he's learned how to cope with that pressure, having played in the BPL and the Big Bash for Hobart and for Rajasthan in the IPL. And that was sort of the ultimate vindication of, of you know, what yourself and what a number of other early pioneers, I suppose, have been saying all along, which is go and let us play in these tournaments, not only because we're going to earn money, but because we're going to become better players. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I think there was a misconception, even back when, you know, my IPL days, obviously I didn't go for the money that a lot of the guys do now, but I, I pretty much paid my way I think the second year with the compensation people don't always see you know you pay your clubs and you obviously with all your tax I think it cost me money in my second year to go back to Pune but in the long-term development it was well worth it but everyone just at the time as you said they see it as a golden ticket oh you're in the IPL that means you're earning millions of dollars well actually there's only a select few that are lucky enough to get the big pay but the learning was something you know and the experience is something that it was worth every penny of me going there you know I think you touched on it as well. There was, I think, the most famous example in the last couple of years. Billings went for what was his base price. Um, but the ECB, so keen for, them, for Billings to go and get the experience out there, compensated him. Because after he was paying the money back, as you said, to, to his county and to the, to the ECB, he was going to be losing money and, and the ECB compensated him. So it shows how far things had changed. Things had sort of gone 180, um, yeah. whereby they were paying, <laughs> paying their players to go out there. Um, and Billings had, had a good season with CSK and obviously you know, playing under guys like Dhoni, he's only going to learn and improve and become a better cricketer. So um, yeah, it's amazing how things have changed. Freddie, something that the 2020 layman might not have an appreciation for and something that we've touched on already a little bit on the show. Um, but how, how rare is it for someone to be a gun player against both spin and pace in T20 cricket? Is, is the former in particular actually quite rare? Yeah, well, I mean, it goes back to what, um, what we've been talking about already with matchups and weaknesses. Um, and the more that, um, that players are analysed, the more that you can seek to find a weakness. Um, and probably the most famous recent example um, is Chris Lynn. He's someone who was hugely destructive against pace. And he's actually improved his game against spin in the last few years. But teams know to target Lynn with spin. And so, you know, you'll see now um, teams will often open with a left arm spinner, turning the ball away from Lynn's bat. And he's had to sort of find a way. And he has found a way to navigate through that. But he's nowhere near as destructive as he's against pace. And having that balance in your game is more important now than ever because of the level of analysis that goes into it. So if you can be a player that you know, scores quickly against pace and then they bring on the spinners and you're just as effective, it becomes very difficult to tie you down. And I think all the guys that we're going to talk about today, we've already spoken about Gale and De Villiers, are both players who... who well, De Villiers, is, there is no weakness, as we've said. Gale... Um, there's a slight weakness against left arm pace, but generally he's very dominant against all the bowler types. Off spin sometimes can slow him down. Um, and then another player who I think we're going to talk about, um, and, and, and Luke mentioned how Gale has a high dot ball percentage. 
This player doesn't do that. He opens the batting and is very strong against pace and spin, and that's David Warner. So Warner takes what Gale has as an opener, which is raw power, strength against pace and spin, and he taps into a little bit of that stuff that De Villiers does, which is he's, he's a quick runner between the wickets. He can rotate strike. Um, and it's about basically, you know, there are a series of, um, I suppose, different factors that you're going to use to evaluate a player and trying to lift each one up, be that be dot ball percentage, boundary percentage, strength against pace, strength against spin, getting them all as high as you can is the key to being a really good player. And Warner is someone who is fantastic at almost all of those things. Um, and he's not a genius like De Villiers, I don't think. He's not got that same sort of um, almost like sprinkle of stardust that De Villiers has, but he does... Um, bring, I think, together elements of Gale's game and De Villiers' game in, in one. Um, and he probably now, actually, has overtaken, on current form anyway, Gale as the predominant T20 opener. Luke, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on Warner as a player. Oh, well, yeah, as you said, absolutely phenomenal. I think that's where it's so important, looking back, I'd, you know, I'd love to help out in terms of putting lists together, because I think it's so important when you put in your batting, rather than just picking out names. I think someone like a Warner, it's, for me, it's no surprise he went really well batting with someone like Johnny Burstow. Obviously, similar sort of player. Loved to run really fast between the wickets, drop and run, turn twos into threes, but then the power as well. So I think if you then put Warner, although he's still at boundaries, but Warner batting with Gale, well, they'd just be run outs left, right and centre. It'd probably wind Warner up. Whereas with someone like Gale, you might put someone like Paul Sterling out with him. Not too fussed about running singles, but very good at hitting boundaries from ball one. So, Someone like, I mean, you know, Warner, I think he's shown it to, to dominate the way he has in IPL um, with the pressures, but just showing all conditions. Yes, he doesn't always get seen as that genius, as you said, with someone like A.B. de Villiers, but the stats don't lie. And he just constantly does it. That competitive spirit obviously really helps him as well. But there's a huge skill in there that probably doesn't always get actually as much attention as it should. Um, but a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Well, and what about Warner as well? One thing we spoke about with Gale was how that method he has, which is basically I'm going to take a bit of time at the beginning of my innings to, to get going and then I'll catch up. Warner doesn't do that to quite the same extent. He, he, openers generally do take a few balls to get going, which is understandable. The, the ball is new. It's probably doing a bit more. The field is up. So singles are harder to come by. But Warner is very good at sort of getting up and going faster than Gale. So when Warner does sort of fail, it's often less of a problem than when Gale does because yeah. um, he's consumed more deliveries. And I think um, forget all Gale's greatness, and he is, you know, we'll discuss at the end where he sort of ranks, you know, he is a phenomenal, phenomenal player. Um, you do wonder how many more players like Gale there will be and actually whether more openers will be a bit more in the Warner, Warner mould, which is combining that power game with a little bit more sort of proactivity and trying to run between the wickets because when it goes wrong for a, for a Gale-style player, it can be quite damaging to the side. Um, and I think there is a bit of a sort of um, a, a growing movement, I suppose, for people to get up going quickly. And actually, that's something that, you know, having worked with teams around the world in drafts and auctions, strike rate in like the first five, ten balls, particularly for guys in lower down the order, but also as an opener, how quickly can you get up to speed? That's important and it's something that Warner does well. Yeah, and I think he's, uh, the other thing, I think it intimidates bowlers, doesn't it? When you scoring, he targets those first couple of balls, which puts you under massive pressure. I know a lot of bowlers always talk about trying to just get out of the over. If they haven't gone for a boundary by the fifth, sixth ball, it's always on the radar to just try and get out. And they're trying to maybe bowl York or whatever to get out the over. Whereas he's someone so proactive in your face, trying to, you know, as I said, take, take the attack to you straight away. Um, and I think you're right. I think there's almost, again, it's, there's that, freakness of him such a unique character you know he's a monster of a, of a size 
And I think the way that the game's going now is, as I said, all the fitness and all that, and it is about being productive that way. Um, and he is someone that's the money. He's a strong, strong little character, but then he's rapid as well. So he's able to have the touch as well as the power. The players we've mentioned so far are generally top order batsmen. One of the hardest things when building a T20 side is finding middle order batsmen who smash it from ball one at the end. I mean, it's, it's quite a topical uh, point of conversation in relation to the current England side. Luke, who for you are the best middle order hitters first in England? There's been a lot of talk about who might best fulfil that role for England and also the world. Well, when it comes to it, I think one of the biggest debates always, and I'm sure Freddie's got his stats on this, but obviously it's the Joss Butler, isn't it? Should he be at the top of the order? Should he be down the order? And for me, I just think it is so unique to find someone that can finish games off. And, you know, we're going to touch on someone like a Kieran Pollard in a minute. But I just think it's one of the hardest things is finish the game they come in with the game on the line they've got to strike straight away the field's out the ball's out a little bit softer um, and for someone like Butler for me it's so difficult to do what they do down the order and I think that's why when when you're trying to pick the best player ever at the moment in T20 it's so difficult because there's such different roles and you know stats will say if you three down in the first six you often lose games so the importance of an opener is massive because you're expected to get the 50 60 plus scores and when you do that the stats on you winning as a winning team Freddie will tell you is very high but in terms of difficulty to come in um, and win games back order it is so tough and and some of these guys that do it they're managing to do it with huge strike rates which you would expect but also their average tells you that they're very consistent at doing it and winning games and that's why someone like Butler I feel that he we've got people who can do what he can do at the top that I don't think Many can do what he does at the bottom for England. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that you said that because when but when the England question was raised, I was having a thing. Yaz mentioned that we'd talk about it today, and I was thinking, I, I don't know who I'm. You know, who who England should have in that position. It is difficult, but but you sort of forget Butler is the guy. They're obviously England have chosen to at the moment stick him at the top of the order, and I think it goes back to quite an interesting debate around how you build a T20 batting order, and it's does your best player open the batting and therefore face the most balls, which is what England seems to have done at the moment with Butler. Or do you put your best player in the most difficult position, um, which is sort of in that, as you said, that middle order finisher role coming in and having to start quickly. And I think in, in domestic competition, particularly in the blast, um, where you've got a lot of teams and the talent sometimes a little bit more thin, thinly spread, I think it makes sense to just stick your best player at the top. But for England, England have, as you said, so many options at the top of the order. Bairstow and Roy uh, are the two obvious ones, but also Hales is someone who's off, out, out of the side at the moment. Tom Banton's obviously pushing for an inclusion. There are loads of options there. Opening the batting is, and without wanting to do down your fantastic achievements, I think in some respects a little bit easier than coming in later because you've got the field up, um, the ball is hard and new, and you can take a bit of time to get going. So England at the moment have a surplus of options up there at the top of the order. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It makes sense, therefore, to put a player as fantastic Butler is a genius in that more difficult role um, down the order um, but yeah it, it, that, that, that sort of moves us on nicely to that debate about um, you know as Yaz said we've spoken about top order players batting towards the back end and Luke you did it a little bit in fact you did it for England in the 2010 World Cup um, that was your role how, how does coming in in that period differ to, to when you're, you're opening the batting well, I think the first thing, you don't get those balls like you would at the top of the order where you've got time just to play yourself in, have a look. You know, as you said, it's new ball. It might be swinging, which obviously is difficult, but you can give yourself a couple of overs. Whereas I think when you're coming in back end, you know, you know exactly what's in front of you. You've got the advantage of knowing what is required, but often the required is 10 and over, 
for the last three overs, you've got to go. You know, a dot ball is suddenly the rate is going up, the pressure of that. And as I said, the, the ball's are a bit softer um, and it, you, it, the field's out. You've got no time to breathe. You're straight into action, which I rec- that's why I think it's so tough. I found it a lot harder coming in um, at the bottom end. I mean, it suited me even with Sussex. I was opening the batting, but then I'd come into England at times and have to back down the order. And it was such a drastic change. I found that really difficult. And even for me now, when I bat in, you know, in 2020, I still, some days I'll go off straight away, but it suits me to play a slightly longer game to get two or three overs under my belt and then attack the back at the back three overs of a power play. Um, especially I bat with someone like Phil Salt, who wants to go straight away. So I can sort of sit in. Um, but I think when you look at the skill of those players that see home, and I think now looking at IPL auctions, I think they've got wise to actually realising Bar, bar maybe three or four of the very top opening batters in the world, your Warners and, you know, Hales or whoever it is. Sorry, Hales obviously misses out a lot of the times, but they pick the absolute best of those overseas players to open. If you're not one of those top four or five in the world, the big money is spent on the finishers. You know, the the Dave Hussies originally, now it's the Pollards the and the, you know, the Russells who can come in and win you a game at the back end. And I think now they're probably getting the money they, and recognition they deserve. Last year, during his ridiculous IPL, Russell said, Chris Gale changed my life in terms of power hitting. I've learned a lot from him. I used to use lighter bats, but when you make contact with a light bat, it doesn't go anywhere. During the World Cup, he came to me and said, Russ, you're better than that. You can use bigger bats. You're strong. Obviously, the stronger you are, the lighter your bat feels in your hand. Luke, is physical strength much more important nowadays? Is it essential for modern day T20 batsmen to be really strong in a way that batsmen haven't necessarily needed to be before I, I don't think it's essential I think it's do I mean obviously the one thing that's coming now is the bat size are being monitored aren't they I mean at times looking at what Warner and Gale and those guys were using um were huge <laughs> blanks of wood and it, it, it look it's it's easy to say oh they're just so strong they could do it I think you have to be that strong to lift some of the wood that they were doing if I tried to do it at my uh, you know my size my bat swing would have been really slow and therefore I actually wouldn't, I don't think I'd have hit the ball as far. Um, so there is a strength element, but you only have to look at, you know, IPL, you see some of the guys coming out to bat, the, you know, some of them are like five foot and skin and bones, they don't look like they've got a lot of muscle, but they've got real strong core um, and they're able to hit sixes out the ground. So I think there's a strength in there. I don't think it's all about size, but when you talk about Gale's size, I mean, you know, the bloke's six foot seven or whatever he is and an absolute unit. So in that size, he can use a three pound bat. Um, but I think there's a difference in just size and actual strength and speed and, you know, um, you know, fast twitch fibers and going into all this with batters. And I think that's where it's really changed people with concentrating on gym. You know, you're not just there as a podgy batter. You're there actually, you've got a core strength in it. And I think all that does definitely help. I think, uh, you know, I think there is, um, there is an element of it, which is sort of just, natural ball striking ability and whilst I wouldn't want to call this bloke small um, he's not as big as Russell and Pollard and someone like Hardik Pandya um, is he's, he's obviously muscular but he is leaner than those guys but he's still yeah. a phenomenal hitter and that goes back to the fact that I think you can you don't need to be built like a boxer to, to clear the ropes regularly um, and Hardik's someone who just is such a good ball striker he's got great hand eye and he can clear the ropes but when you do have I think that added muscular power it probably gives you a little bit more margin for error. Like the number of times that Pollard and Russell will swing hard for a ball and not make a clean connection and it still goes to six um, gives them a bit, you know, it gives them an advantage essentially because, you know, they, they, they don't need to be, you know, they don't need to time the ball as well. Um, and I think, you know, those two, 
Um, we've spoken about the top order players, Gale, De Villiers, um, and Warner. I think Pollard and Russell, you're, you know, you're right, it's comparison is very difficult. But when we're talking about the greatest batsmen, they're also, they should be in, in that discussion. Um, Pollard was very much the first one to emerge. I think he played um, what, what I regard probably as one of the most famous T20 innings. It was um, in the 2009 Champions Trophy, playing against New South Wales. And Pollard came to the crease and the run rate was just, required weight rate was ridiculous. And they were playing against a very good New South Wales attack. Um, Pollard was on like seven off seven and then just exploded and saw them over the line with more than an over to spare. And it was in 2009. It was kind of the first point at which I think the finisher for a long time was sort of, particularly in one day cricket, regarded as that kind of like quite um, sort of like touch player. He'd navigate his way through dif- difficult run rates, you know, going way back to sort of um, ODI cricket, guys like Javid Miandad and Michael Bevan, who were basically in, you know, sort of like innings builders. That was what the finisher was thought of. And then Pollard came along. And there were other hitters as well, someone like Simons who we mentioned. But Pollard came along and just brought brute power to the game. And, and I think not overnight, because that would be dramatic to say that, but quite quickly, power hitting was, was, was born, essentially. And you got the point, you know, um, Luke, one of, one of our friends, Trent Woodhill, um, it, it has built a career now off being, you know, a, a, a coach who's sort of training the ability to make good contact with the ball and be a powerful player. There's a guy, Julian Wood, who works with quite a few players as well, who is a power-hitting coach. That didn't exist 20 years ago. Um, and that's come about because of someone like Pollard and what they can do. And then, Yaz, you touched on it. Russell's IPL last year was, you know, I think that's the most amazing season of T20 cricket that anyone's ever played, frankly. Um, and he's taken what Pollard has done for 10 years and, and sort of doubled down on it. And he's got, you know, he's even better. And I remember there was a, it was, I think Boomerah would bowled a wide Yorker to Russell last year. It was almost perfect wide Yorker. And Russell hit it over backward point for six. And it's like what we were talking about earlier with that sort of range in front of square. Russell is now opening up a sort of six hitting area square of the wicket, which very few players can access. And um, you can, you're, we're literally sort of seeing power hitting evolve in front of our eyes. Um, and I don't think Russell has yet got the body of work to sort of be considered alongside Gale or, or maybe de Villiers. But what he's doing is remarkable. And if he can continue to do that um, for a couple more years, then he's going to be in that conversation. No, I was going to say, well, I think, look, we're here just to discuss, obviously, the batter. But you also put in the element with both those unbelievable fielders on top. Um, the catching ability is obviously second to none, but then obviously they bowl. And I know Russell is obviously a better bowler than Pollard, but he still holds his own. So to add that in, um, but Pollard's numbers. And the, the one thing I think does go under the radar sometimes with Pollard is he's won the most trophies. I know he's played the most games, but his return with trophies is unbelievable. I think he's won 10 or 11 trophies in domestic cricket. Again, just shows, and he's had a huge part in finishing a lot of those, a lot of those trophies and, and matches he's won. But to average thirty batting where he does at the strike rate just shows an unbelievable return. I think you're right about Russell. I think no doubt in another four or five years or shorter, we'll be looking back at Russell as one of the best T20 players all round has been. Um, but it, but Pollard has to be thought about because just sheer sheer numbers are phenomenal about where he's batting. And also Pollard as well, consistently amazes me. He's only 33 years old. I often think of him as nearer the, well, he might, you know, he might have fitness issues and, and maybe he won't play as long as Gale did, for example. I think Pollard made his debut when he was 19, which is amazing. Um, I've always, well, he's always just been such a big bloke that you've assumed he's going to have to be a little but, bit older than that. I, I played with him in Bangladesh uh, not that long ago. And uh, it was the first time I've actually played alongside him. I honestly... I suppose in my arrogance, because I just remember watching Pollard all the time, even before, it felt like even before I was sort of playing, 
And I sort of asked him when he was going to look to retire. And then I found out he's younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. if, 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 if he was to play, I think I, I looked recently and, and he won't probably play, um, you know, for seven, seven more years or so, which Gail is now, you know, that's how long, or Gail is still playing at that age. But if Pollard does play that long, he, he, he might overtake Gail's run tally, which, as you said, Luke, you know, coming from a middle order player, that is just mind blowing. Yeah. And you bring in the fielding. Um, the bowling and the captaincy too. Um, he, he is a, a remarkable player and probably in this debate, one who might sneak under the radar and I don't think people would quite give him as much credit yeah. alongside someone like Gale as he should because his role is more difficult. He's still younger. He's been doing it just as long. Um, so yeah, no, he, he is a, a remarkable player. I think as well, maybe the fact that hasn't done as much at international cricket, he's obviously played so much domestically, is another reason why people always have that question mark against him. But, I mean, it's a shame he hasn't played more because I'm sure those numbers would have changed as well. But, yeah, I, I think he is massively underrated. Well, and also, he, he, the thing is now, he's obviously the West Indies captain. It would be, it would be pretty awesome if um, you know, he could lead the West Indies to defend their title. That would certainly help his legacy. Um, you know, there was obviously, well, we don't know when it's going to happen, but there are probably going to be two T20 World Cups coming up in quite quick succession. Um, and that, that could do a lot for his, for his legacy if he was yeah, to definitely. lead a young side to that title. We've talked about players who are great hitters or are supremely skillful. How much room is there for the classical batsman at the, top of, at the very top of T20 cricket, Freddie? How, how close are Kohli and Sharma, who won that cricket info poll a couple of weeks ago, to the players that we mentioned so far? Well, they're, they're certainly in. Kohli is in the discussion. I think Rohit, for, for what it's worth, um, he won that poll. He wouldn't, you know, he's a fantastic player, um, a world class player. But for me, he's not quite in this discussion. Um, he's not been quite as consistent or as explosive. Um, uh, if both, he's had a very good international career. But his IPL was sometimes up and down. Brilliant player, but not just to park that one side. I don't think he's quite in this discussion. Uh, your broader question about the place of, of a sort of more classical player is a really interesting discussion. I think we've seen um, Luke will be well placed to, to talk about this as well. The game evolve over the last 15 years, whereby someone like Michael Klinger, um, who is a sort of classical anchor batsman, scores at a strike rate of sort of 120 or so. That role has really evolved. And to the point now where it's, you know, they, they might seem very different players, but Coley plays a similar role to Klinger in that he's basically told, and, and Luke, you said early on, um, team often had just one or two hitters and then they had more classical players around them. Now, it's you have four or five hitters and then two, one or two classical players. And that classical role, which Klinger fulfilled, and now someone like Coley fulfills, is essentially you're told to, to basically provide stability to the innings, I think. You're going to bat deep. You're going to bat for you know, 35, 40 balls on average per innings. Um, and the challenge for those players is not batting for a long period of time. They've got such good techniques. Um, other players we could talk about in this you know, similar mould um, Kane Williamson, Steve Smith, um, even Joe Root, um, guys who, you know, that we know they can bat 35, 40 deliveries. The challenge for them is trying to maintain a scoring rate, which isn't a drag on the side. Um, and I think, you know, Coley, why Coley is in this discussion is that he is the player who does that better than anyone. He can bat for 35, 40 balls and score at a strike rate of 140, 150. Um, and when he's in, when he's faced those 45, 50 balls, he can really kick on and score at rapid rates. And that's the challenge. And it's a hugely difficult role, I think, because you're basically being told, and we talked about trade-offs earlier with De Villiers, to score quickly whilst not getting out. That's, that's a very hard thing to do. But Coley does it very, very well. Um, and he's the best of that role. And so, yeah, he's, he's in this discussion for sure. And I think with those, that's why they're 
their techniques are so good is why their averages are so good. And as you said, I think the strike rates for that sort of player has gone up now at this stage. And I'm sure people like Coley and there's Baba Azam, who they're so good that I'm sure when we look back in another five years, their, their stats will go again and they'll suddenly be striking at 140s as a career. Um, and then the next people we're trying to get 190s. But I think it will keep evolving. But those guys, I think, especially Coley, I mean, as you said, to be able to average what he does consistently is shows how skillful he is. But at the moment, because we're still, we're still got, he's still got plenty of time to play cricket. At this moment, he's in the discussion, but for me, he's not quite there yet. Yeah, and I, I think you know it's important to say that why, and I think why is that we've just spoken about guys like Gale and Warner at the top, who basically bat for as long as Coley does bat. Similarly, not quite as many balls, and they score significantly faster. Um, so it's not that Coley's not a phenomenal player; he is. He's absolutely brilliant. But there are examples that we've spoken about today who basically do what he does in terms of that stability element. Warner in particular, his consistency is remarkable. He will always bat for 30 or 40 balls, almost always, and, and he'll score faster than Coley. So just on that very simple fact, um, you know, I've got Warner above Coley for that reason. But you're right, the role is constantly evolving um, and, and it's, a, it's a really difficult role to do. Um, but I think in a way, those players like Coley are almost there to facilitate more destructive players doing their thing, um, you know, to allow the guys like Russell and, and Pollard, the guys who have a huge impact on a game, to have that impact. They're almost sort of like playmakers in football. They're there to set up the, you know, to see the nice pass and then set up, you know, the, 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 the brilliant finish from Messi or in this instance from Pollard or Russell. Um, so that's sort of how I see things. Um, Coley's in this discussion because he's the very best of that role but he's not as good as um, probably all, all the five others that we've mentioned, I'd say. Yeah, I wonder if the aesthetic of a batsman plays a part in how people rate them. Like, There's a purity to someone like Coley's batting, and it's almost as if they're not taking risks. Definitely compared to someone like Gale, who looks to clear the rope so regularly, which looks more risky, is more risky, I guess, and it looks as if he's not quite as in control of his innings. That's a great point, and it's almost like, I feel like if, you, if you're, because they look so elegant, to sort of say that they're not the best is almost like, whoa, hang on. But like, you know, he, he look, look at that cover drive. And it's like, yeah, they do look fantastic, but their output is, is, is not quite as destructive as, as the guys we've mentioned. And that, that does come into it. And I think it almost purists or traditionalists find that quite a hard thing to get their head around. Are you seeing younger players whose natural skill sets may be more suited to T20 cricket, being more confident in saying that that's what they want to focus on? Well, I suppose the difference for... Than for the guys now is they're growing up with it, aren't they? They they grow up with twenty twenty cricket. You know they're born into it now. Whereas we were always we've sort of had to adapt and learn and grow as as players as we've gone. And as as I said, suddenly you know Butler or someone comes along and starts playing reverse sweeps or whatever it is, you then have to adapt as a player and try and add that to your game. Whereas I think you only see now when the kids come into the nets or they come onto the staff from academies. They've grown up with this. This is how they're playing in the back garden. They're already playing this way. And then actually it's trying to build in the four-day cricket to them differently. And I think, you know, it's having that moment. It has had an effect on how people play four-day cricket. It's a lot more attacking now. People aren't able to sit in and be as patient. But in terms of skill set of what they can do, the skills, what these kids are coming through is phenomenal. But then it actually the skill of a coach is can you then package it back into bringing them down a level and have that patience in a society when we're all impatient and we all want things quickly, actually can then teach them to do it for the cricket. And I have no doubt we can. 
because the skill set is there, but it's just a different skill set. But in terms of 2020, the, the kids are coming through the skills now. You know, I stand there at time in absolute awe of some of the things that kids are doing. And I know I'm probably past that point now where it's worth me even trying to learn to do it because it's too late. But I'm in awe of some of the things these kids do and the fact that they just try them. You know, you're brought up now on let's go for it. Let's have a go. Let's be attacking. Let's go for it. Whereas, you know, at times when I grew up, even playing for England, you got caught mid-off and you got an absolute slating for getting caught mid-off. You know, I remember walking in change room, you caught mid, caught mid-off, but we wanted to score fours and sixes or the presser nailing you for getting caught, you know, going for a big shot, yet we want to score quicker. But now the press talk about, you know, go out and be free. This is where we're going to play. And people like Morgs as captains are now doing that. And that's a great impact for any player coming through. So we've mentioned three players here who all played for the same IPL franchise, RCB, but they never won anything. Simple question. How come that's the case? Well, there's two. I mean, for me, the sort of obvious answer, I suppose, to this is that there are two elements to cricket, broadly speaking. There's batting and there's bowling. And RCB, in having those three players, Gail, Coley and De Villiers, in the side together, particularly De Villiers and Coley, because they were on big salaries. Gail actually was picked up quite cheap. Um, but by, by having De Villiers and Coley on, on, their, um, on their list, they were spending a huge proportion of their budget on those two players. And, and it, it meant that it left them exposed or it made it more difficult, I suppose, to build a, a well-rounded squad. Um, this is something that um, we were, we've written about in our book and I talk about often is the importance of having a strong bowling attack. And Luke will know this, having captain Sussex in recent years with a, with a very strong bowling attack. You can become a consistent side with a good bowling attack. You can rely on your bowlers to bowl 24 balls every game. You can't rely on your batsmen to face 24 balls. Sometimes they'll face 50 or 60 and it will be brilliant. And that's why RCB sometimes were fantastic to watch and they'd, they'd score 240, 250 plus um, this week. In fact, Sky were showing highlights of, of one of their games when they did that against Gujarat. And it's like, this is, this is great fun. This is awesome. I'd pay to go and watch this. But is it the recipe to building a title-winning side? Probably not. Um, because it means it leaves your bowling exposed um, and, and it's harder to, you know, to, I suppose, build that sort of consistent results and string those results together. Do we potentially overrate them in our heads because they all played so much cricket on a so much high-profile cricket at, at the Chinese Army, a, a, small, a small ground with very small boundaries and a very flat track? I don't think so. I, th- I think they're all, so, you know, to, to, all three of them have had fantastic careers around the world. Um, it's obviously helped them that they've played at the Chennai I think there's a fair chance Gale wouldn't have scored 175 if he'd been batting at um, a different ground with smaller boundaries or a tougher batting pitch, you know, as he did that day. Um, and there'd certainly be some lower scores at some points in history. Um, but they've all, yeah, they've all played hundreds of games around the world. And I think, um, yeah, no, their, their quality speaks for itself. I, I don't think we, we overrate them. Um, it, it's just a quirk of fate. And it's a good quirk of fate because we've got to enjoy them, play some incredible innings together at that ground. Okay, we need to pick one batsman. Gail is a standout by some distance from a raw numbers point of view. Luke, who are you going for? Well, look, it's so difficult, isn't it? I think if, oh, it stresses me out even thinking about it. Look, raw, raw talent and genius-wise, I would always go for A.B. de Villiers, um, just on pure talent and everything. For me, everything that T20 is about is entertainment and the sheer numbers that Gale has put up over a long period and going to that entertainment anyone that will of course everyone will turn and watch Amy de Villiers but you sit in absolute awe when you're watching the ball go as far as it does when you're watching Gale so 
I think for his numbers, his hundreds, he scored everything. For me, at this time in at the moment, I'd have to just go with Gale. Um, but it's so difficult because you could pick so many different people in different categories. But right now, I, I'd have to stick with Gale. Well, it's, that's a shame because now we're going to have the same answers. <laughs> I, I, I agree completely with what Luke said there. I think Gale's the greatest T20 batsman. I think that, that it can't be refuted just at this point in time, looking at his numbers, um, looking at the body of work that he's put together over such a long time around the world, the number of hundreds he scored, the number of runs he scored, where he's done it, who he's done it against. So Gale's the greatest, but I think you know, Luke made a very good point there. I think De Villiers is arguably the best, and there's a slight difference there. Um, De Villiers for me if I had to have someone to bat for my life it'd be him because I think he can do things he, 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 as I said earlier he rejects all the trade-offs of batting uh, sort of, you know, people feel like you have to compromise in a certain area De Villiers doesn't um, yeah if I had to have someone bat for my life it'd be him and then just to sort of add a, another layer to the debate I think Warner and Russell it'll be very interesting to see how both of those two track those two individuals so Warner is chasing Gale as that opener um, very different method, but he, he's, he's, he's putting in remarkable numbers. And then Russell, um, I suppose, is a sort of more heir to Pollard, really. Um, but he could well come into the discussion, as, as we said earlier, in a couple of years' time. Um, because what he's doing from a power-hitting perspective is, is even more destructive than what Gale has done. Yeah, I mean, it's, the stats are incredible. Gale has 22 T20 hundreds, second highest as a three-way tie between Finch, Warner and Klinger on eight. There's an amazing stat in Cricket 2.0. Between 2003 and 2019, a Test 100 on average is reached every 19 innings, every 34 innings in ODI cricket, and there's 101 in every 290 innings in T20 cricket. Gale hits one once every 17 innings in T20 cricket, which is astonishing. He scores T20 hundreds more regularly than we see hundreds in Test cricket. Finally, if we were to have this conversation in 10 years' time, who do you think would be in this conversation that we haven't mentioned today? Oh, it's a really difficult question seeing people come through. I know we mentioned that I saw like uh, Barbara Azam. I think whether he, if he can get his strike rate up again to those numbers, but in terms of just raw talent, and uh, he is a phenomenal player. I think Russell will become the greatest 20 cricketer almost there could be at some point, as you said with Freddie, because we're putting him in even a chance to win just the batter, alone without the other facets of what he brings to the cricket. So he's one. I mean, you know, I, I have no doubt he's going to take some beating going forward for a long, long time. I'm trying to think of some young kids. I mean, in England, I'm really excited by someone like Tom Banton. I, I, I watch him and he literally gets me up out of my seat. The first time I ever saw him, he reverse swept um, Tamar Mills for us bowling fast. And I've never seen anything like it. And I, at that point, I stood there and I almost watched it. I know people have said he's a bit KPS, but it was the first time when I just watched and said, there's not many kids. We've got some serious, talented players in England. We're very lucky. And, I'm, you know, I opened with one of them in Phil Salt. But seeing him do that, it was something different. And I have I'm not saying he's going to become one of the greatest batters of all time, but... I have great hopes for him and I hope we just back him to the hill and we just keep him going and give him every chance as we can. And if that means Butler slides down to six, then that's okay with me for international <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I echo what Luke says about Banton. He's obviously a phenomenal talent. Um, a couple of names that I noted down. Um, there are two, well, three that sort of stand out over the next couple of years. Um, Rishabh Pant, um, in the IPL, I think he's probably the most most exciting player in the world at the moment. Um, Nicholas Peran, who's a player in a similar mould, middle order player, 
Um, and it goes back to what we we're saying about how difficult it is to be a middle-order batsman. Those two are doing that, and they're doing it really well. And then another player who does sneak under the radar a bit, who is a similar mould to Kohli, but actually I'd argue he could, could be better than him, um, KL Rahul, who basically does what Kohli does. Again, what we're talking about with Warner and Gale, but scores quicker. Um, he also scores 360 degrees in a way that Kohli doesn't quite. Um, I, I've got really high hopes for him over the next few years. He's just established himself in India's T20 side and the next two World Cups, I think he could be um, a major star for them in, in those tournaments. I think we'd all love to see Indian players being allowed to play in all the different comps, wouldn't we? I mean, I know, I think it was uh, one of the players came out, was it Ottapur? Ottapur, yeah, and Rainer last week. Yeah, came out and said, but I mean, that would be amazing. And I think for them, the more cricket they can play, they're obviously putting themselves up against different conditions and being in the light all the time, rather than it just being for India or the IPL. But uh, we'd all love to see that, Um, you know, and fingers crossed in the future that does happen. What we need is uh, India to be thumped in the next two T20 World Cups. Ganguly to come over here to Water 100 and realise what he's missing. (laughs) Anyway, Luke, thanks so much for joining us. This has been the first episode of our new show, so please do tell your friends if you're feeling extra nice. Why not leave us a five-star review of the podcast stat? And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Cheers. Podcast Network.